Well, I don't know how to describe what this teaching is going to be. <laughs> so I'm just going to give the teaching. Um, uh, let's see. It's really hard because Matthew is so rich. There's so many things you can do in Matthew. And um, if, as I understand it, Billy is really honing in for, at LCF and JCF, I guess. Uh, he's honing in on uh, Jesus as a greater Moses um, and so I, I, w- I want to encourage you to go and listen to those um, as they come out because they, they're going to be, I think they're going to be really insightful and they're going to fill in for us um, that whole idea, that thread of the Old Testament. Uh, I think he's doing several weeks of just the Moses theme. Um, tonight I think he's talking about the law and the Sermon on the Mount and the, the fulfillment of the new law. So... That's really good, and I decided not to try and, like, tag along with him here. Um, and so tonight, I, I'm giving more of a, I don't know, this could be a little shorter, and it, it's a little more just small-scale uh, encouragement for us, exhortation maybe. Um, not really a, a survey of any of the, the big themes that we talked about last week. Um, we'll, we'll jump back into that. But for tonight, I just wanted to focus on... As I've been reading, I've found myself really drawn to the first four chapters, really the first three chapters, the, the birth stories. and the, um, every, time I, every time I open it to read and try and get that, I just get stuck there. <laughs> and um, stuck in the, 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 the opening of the book. Uh, all the different places, and I don't, I don't know if you've started to do this or if you've done it already, but the places where he says this happens so that what was spoken by Isaiah or whatever prophet he's quoting might be fulfilled. It's just amazing to go back and figure out the context of those Old Testament scriptures, which themselves often you need to go even farther back to get the context for what the prophet was talking about in that time to see how Matthew was using that prophet. Matthew really is like an elite level Bible scholar, uh, Old Testament scholar. I mean, he lives in these stories. His vocabulary, he, he, he quotes a little scripture, a little verse from an Old Testament passage, and it's a whole world of thought for him, okay? It's not just, well, that box got checked, right? This prophet made this big check, check mark box, and when Jesus came, went, ding, fulfilled. That's not what, that's not what prophetic fulfillment really means, okay? It's, it's not... This prophet saw this specific thing happening. He closed his eyes or he had a dream in the night and saw Jesus coming and living in Nazareth. And then, boop, Jesus came and did that. That's not what it is. It's a whole, it's a whole aspect of the purpose of God that the prophet was getting a picture of and speaking, that, speaking the truth of that. And Jesus come, coming and really putting flesh and bones on that truth that the prophet was kind of feeling his way toward. Um, so anyway, I, I want to talk about, there's two things, and they kind of connect. <laughs> I was talking to Emily, I was like, I've got, I've got two things I want to say. I'm not exactly sure how they connect. Um, the first thing I want to do is talk about the, the names that, that Jesus has given in the opening of the, of the book, in chapter 1. Uh, Jesus and Emmanuel. 
And then I want to look at <clears throat> what, what each of these people, each of the characters in the story, in these opening chapters, what their response is to the presence of Jesus, to the appearance of Jesus on the scene. Um, and the question looming over all of this, this is the big question for tonight, is a question that I, st- I stole from uh, JP had me... Uh, looking up these John Wesley accountability questions that I, I really love them. I, I've, I've used them a lot over the years, but I've kind of been diving back into those. Um, but the culminating question of his list of, I think it's 20 or 24 questions of, of self-examination uh, is, is Jesus Christ real to me? And that's the question that's just kind of looming over me as I'm in these opening chapters. Um, because I see Jesus Christ being real to every person in this story. Um, in a, he's real, all right? And the, the connection, I think, between those names and that question, is Jesus Christ real to me, is that names make someone real to us. That these names, Jesus and Emmanuel, are meant to make Jesus real to us. We're supposed... When God revealed his name to Moses, and we sang it, Yahweh, Yahweh, that was a big deal. God says, I haven't revealed myself by this name yet, but I'm bringing you into relationship with me by revealing to you this name, Yahweh. I am that I am. And God was more real to Moses at that that point. God was made more real. There was, there was a way that Moses now could address God and not just the generic deity. It was the personal name of God. And these names that were given for Jesus are precious names for us to know and address him by. Um, and they make Jesus real to us. So um, it's in chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the first one. And then it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is, is named Jesus because that means deliverer or salvation. Okay, and it's the same, we talked about this last week, it's the same name as Joshua uh, in the Old Testament. Yeshua means deliverer or, or uh, salvation. Okay? And that is how, I mean, that is the name that the Father told through angels, told Mary and Joseph to name this human being that was being born in the flesh. That... Um, was to be God in the flesh. You have to name you have to name someone who's born. And this is the name God picked out. This is the name God picked out. And that's very significant. He will save his people from their sins. And then he's given another name, Emmanuel, which is more of a, a prophetic name. It comes out of Isaiah. And it means God with us. And we looked last week at Deuteronomy 31 how um, when Moses is commissioning Joshua and the people, 
Um, actually, we can go there. I, I'd like to go back there. Uh, Deuteronomy 31. Well, let me go back for it. Let's, let's go to Exodus. I, I want to look at Exodus 6 and Exodus 19 to show how these names are really names of, of God. And there are ways that God wanted, has always wanted his people to know him as. Okay? Exodus 6. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them and to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, I am the, this is the personal name of God. I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people. So very clearly the idea of God as salvation, as deliverance. He's even saying, this is my name, this is who I am. I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. But I, I also think that here is, here is Emmanuel as well. I will bring you, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So God wants his people to know his name. To know him as a deliverer. And to know him as God with us. What was the promised land if not a place where God could be with his people? Okay, so they are saved to be with God. There's Jesus and Emmanuel right there. He will save his people from their sins, and he will be God with us. Exodus 19 is the, uh, the, the formal covenant ceremony at Sinai. Uh, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I brought you out from the Egyptians to myself. Out from the Egyptians to myself. This is who Jesus is. Jesus is here to, bring his, to deliver his people from their sins, to save his people from their sins, and to bring them to God. To be with them as their God. And this is this is deep in the character of God. This is deep within His purposes. This is right at the foundation of everything He did and said all through Scripture. 
So Deuteronomy 31. Verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua will go over at your head. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. They have been saved by the Lord, and they are being brought into the land By God himself, he himself is going with them. The other passage I want to read is in Jeremiah 31. And Matthew quotes from this chapter a few times. I can't get into it tonight, but the, the place where he where they're slaughtering the infants, and he quotes Jeremiah, the, a voice in Ramah, Rachel is weeping for her children. It's an amazing study. Um, it's an amazing study to do. You study what, what Jeremiah was meaning when he said that at that point, and to understand then when Matthew, how Matthew is using Jeremiah. There's a lot of layers there, and it's, it's a little bit of, a, of an arduous dig, but it's, it's awesome to see what God is doing. He's coming down in the midst of his people, and... Um, Rachel died in childbirth and wanted to name her son the son of my anguish and he became son of my right hand, right? And so this is Rachel's weeping, dying in childbirth and uh, God is coming down in the midst of that and it's through the prophets, he's, he's weeping over the situation that's happening and, and, and God is coming himself down into the, into the midst of them. It's really cool um, to go back and, and look at Rachel and, and the way that she died and what that means to this story. Um, but we don't have time for that tonight. Uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one. So this is a prophecy of... Jeremiah is prophesying... Uh, as Matthew points out, the deportation to Babylon, Jeremiah is the, deep, he is the prophet that is, he's the weeping prophet. He's the one that is saying, you are going into captivity. This is what is going to happen. And so many of Jeremiah's prophecies are, and when you come out of captivity, here's what you could set your hope on. But it's going to be 70 years. Don't, you know, don't shortchange the Lord. It is going to be 70 years. Your sins have, have earned you 70 years in captivity. No less, right? And you're going to come back. And so there's a lot of great prophecies about the return out of exile. So he's the exile prophet. He's the one that prophesies returning out of exile. And I talked about last week how Jesus saving his people from their sins is Jesus delivering them from that exile, bringing them back into the land. And so this is, this is really uh, probably the climactic um, end or, or latter days prophecy 
the new covenant. Uh, That's where we get that language here in Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. And it's 3131. It's easy to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's, what, here's the essence of the new covenant. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's what this is all headed toward. Okay, so you will call his name Jesus. He will save their people from their sins. In that is an acknowledgement that now is the time that the forgiveness of sins is going to begin to take place. There was atonement for sins in the Old Testament. And that was a type and a shadow of what was to come. And the blood of bulls and goats was a yearly reminder of sin that was just always there. And until the perfect blood was shed, there wasn't that sense of forgiveness of sins and removal of sin. But Jesus, the blood of, it was the blood of Jesus that enacts that new covenant where God can forgive sins and say, I forgive you. There's no sacrifice required. It's been, it's been paid. I can now forgive you, having dealt with sin in a just way, and exacting the punishment that sin requires and being able to forgive you. This is the new covenant. This is, the, this is, um, this is what Jesus came to inaugurate. Um, all right. So there's sort of some Old Testament background for those two names that, that Jesus is the one who delivers his people from their sins. And that he is God with us. And those are intimately connected because why couldn't God be with them? Because of their sins, right? The whole point of the tabernacle system was so that there could be a place where the holiness of God could come down and be with his people in a very limited sense, right? But that was preferable to not having God at all, right? It was the presence of God among his people. Um, And now here is Jesus to save from sins, and to be God with us. So he comes, uh, and and the story comes to chapter 2, and I just want to look at how the reality of Jesus, him being made real, his his arrival on the scene, um, prompts uh, all the different kinds of responses that it prompts. Okay, Uh, First, there's Mary and Joseph. What does the presence of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus into their lives, uh, prompt them? How does it prompt them to respond? Well, it's, it's a sticky situation. Uh, Joseph doesn't really know what to do, but they basically have to put... <laughs> they're a young couple. I'm sure they have lots of, you know, the Jewish dream that they were striving toward, you know. They 
have a couple kids, a couple donkeys in the stable. And, um, that all got upended, right? They didn't even get to have a wedding ceremony. It was a very strange thing. I mean, Joseph was about to divorce Mary. So their relationship undergoes a crisis. They then have to travel all this way, and Mary has to bear a child, um, and Joseph has to be a, a, a father to a child and, and, and a husband to a, a, a wife who he didn't ever really marry and didn't impregnate. <laughs> what in the world? You know, he becomes an adoptive father against his own... I mean, he, never, he didn't choose that. Um, he was obedient to God and, and, and did that role. But what a response, right? I mean, their lives are totally turned upside down. And they really have to live the rest of their lives under the stigma of this dubiously, uh, this pregnancy that that is shady origins, right? Jesus even gets called a a bastard, essentially, by the Pharisees. This reputation always hung over them. They had to leave their hometown for a while. They could travel down into Egypt, escape uh, the slaughter of infants. I mean, they were targeted. So... An amazing response. Um, the wise men, right? The wise men sense Jesus coming onto the scene, and they don't just kind of from afar go, "Oh, well, this guy's pretty cool." No, I mean they they saddle up and travel and navigate and study and go and find him and ask around, and, and they don't stop until they find him. Uh, because they, they need to, to, to see him and worship him. And then when they, when they do see him, they worship and they bestow extravagant gifts on him. Herod becomes aware of this, the presence of this person named Jesus, the king of the Jews. And he becomes paranoid and full of rage. Okay? So nobody is sitting idly by. <laughs> As Jesus comes on the scene. John the Baptist. He gets called by God into this prophetic ministry. And and lives with extreme lifestyle changes. The way he dresses. The way he eats. And devotes himself to a public. Very public ministry. A confrontational ministry. Declaring who this guy is. Preparing the way. The Pharisees have to wrestle with who this guy is. And it's. At the, at the beginning, it becomes increasingly antagonistic all the way through the gospel. But at the beginning, it's this mixture of curiosity and skepticism. But they can't, they can't ignore it, right? Um, the disciples in chapter 4, when Jesus comes on the scene in, in their lives, they leave everything, it says. They abandon their trade. They abandon their uh, career and follow Jesus. And the, even the crowds, like just the general population, um, begin to bring sick people. Hey, this guy, let's go. Let's bring our sick to him and, and, and get healed. So everybody is responding in some drastic way to the arrival of Jesus. And the only thing we, we don't see anywhere in the gospel is ambivalence. That's the only thing that we don't see. That's never a response to the presence of Jesus. Why? Because he is a real presence. When Jesus is real, there it demands a response. 
And what that response is, is there's a, there's a very broad spectrum. Okay, and this becomes the, the conversation that he has with his disciples in, in chapter 16. Who do people say that I am? What's the, what's the, what's the barometer here? What's the, how are people responding? So it's not a question of if Jesus changes things or if he can change things. It's a question of how he changes things. How he demands change. John and Jesus, their, their primary message is repent, which is a response. It's an action. That's the beginning. Do something. Change. Because this guy is here. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Respond. Because it's real. And I love in chapter 4, uh, which is kind of the final prophecy before Jesus begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It says this, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I like that picture. That's a great way of describing it. Because if you're in a room and you can't see anything, you're walking around in a particular way. And it's kind of like this. <laughs> oh, oh, you know, you trip over something, you step on a Lego, um, it really hurts. And, it's, and, and someone comes in and flips on the light, your whole attitude changes. The whole way that you <laughs> posture yourself and are able to just, oh, yeah, there's Lego. And, whoop, yeah, this, I got what I need, I'm done. Right? The lights have been flipped on. It was dark. Boom, it's light. Everything's different. Revelation. Right? And this is what Jesus does. When Jesus becomes real, the lights get flipped on. And, and nothing is the same. All right? So the question that's hanging over me, and I think hangs over all of us in this season, the doctrine of the incarnation is the doctrine of the reality of Jesus. God, the, the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. That's Jesus Christ being made real. That's God the Father taking on flesh in the form of his son Jesus. And so the question, is Jesus Christ real to me? Another way of asking that is, do I know him by those names? Do I know him as Jesus because he delivers from my sins? So is Jesus Christ real to you as Jesus, the one who saves from sin? Why did you need saving and from what? Do you have clear answers to those questions? Did you understand that you were in your sins? Then did you understand that Jesus was the only way out? Do you understand that? Do you even know what sin is and what its effects are? Do you know sin as sin? 
Because that was one thing Jesus came to do, to show really what sin is and the bondage and the slavery and the exile that it leaves us in. So to answer the question, do I know Jesus as Jesus because he saves from sin, you have to understand what is the great darkness that I dwelt in? What was the region and the shadow of death that I was walking around in? You can't really know him as Jesus if you don't know him as a deliverer, a savior. Do you live under the new covenant? Do you understand the new covenant? Do you live in the forgiveness of sins? If you know Jesus, you do. It's a great question to ask yourself. Why why did I need saving and from what? And then do you know him as Emmanuel? Is he God with us? Is, repent, is the nearness and the at-handness of the kingdom of God, does that spark repentance in your life? Because that's what it does. Jesus says, the, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? There's a way of life. There's a whole way of living. And the lights have been flipped on. And the Son of God has been made real. He's taken on flesh. And we see life as it was always meant to be lived. And you now see yourself in contrast with that. And you see how far away from that you are. And you see how you're headed off in a completely different direction. And you need to turn and you need to start to to look at Jesus and to move toward Jesus and his life. Do you live in a spirit of repentance? This is what John came to say (laughs) to the brood of vipers. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If you understood what was going on, your lives would be changing. You would be different. Every day you would realize something that God wants to work on you and, and mature you in and, and, and shape you and form you and, and prune in your life. Is there an ongoing spirit of repentance in your life, of, of pursuit of Jesus? Is he constantly honing you and, and perfecting you into the image of his son? And so again, is Jesus Christ real to you? Have you turned from sin? And do you live in repentance? Because that's what it means to know him as Jesus. And that's what it means to know him as Emmanuel. It means that nothing is the same. That I cannot... I can do a lot of different things in response to Jesus, but I can't stand still. And I can't do nothing. And I can't be ambivalent. Right? Maybe I get full of rage and want to kill everything that... He represents. But if it's real, there's no ambivalence. This is what Jesus' presence does. And this is, what the, this is what the incarnation does for all of us. And this is why the most fundamental question that you'll ever answer in your life is who do you say that Jesus is? And is he real to you? Does it make sense? 
So the gospel, Matthew is telling a story about the reality of Jesus. And that's what the gospel is. And that's what Christmas is. <laughs> we, now have to, we will always now have to deal with the fact and the reality of Jesus. And if we don't want to do that, then, he, then all we're trying to do is to, to deny his reality. Right? Ambivalence just says, I'd rather he not be real. I don't want to think through those questions. If you've ever read uh, any of T.S. Eliot's poetry, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, he just says, uh, oh, do not ask, what is it? It leads me to an overwhelming question. And then he says, no, I don't want to, I don't want to answer those questions. And he just, he becomes preoccupied with, he says, I have measured out my life in coffee spoons. <laughs> That's the famous line. We just distract ourselves from all of life brings us to these overwhelming questions about who are we? Who is, who is Jesus? Who are we before God? And we'd rather just stay in our own consciousness, in our own little bubbles. Right? The light goes on and then we put a blinder over our eyes. We just rather stay in this darkness, self-inflicted darkness. Um, so those are questions I'm asking myself and I'm, I'm, I'm wanting us to ask in this, in this time. Um, and this is kind of prompted by several, several things that people have shared coming out of the fast and several things that I feel are important for us as a body, um, to be to be considering in these days, um, because it's a great, it's an awesome thing that God has done in our church, and it's this is a great life. Um, but the thing that we need to to be about is the reality of Jesus and His presence, and it's it's not it was not without some prayer and and deep consideration of these very things that we named the church Emmanuel Christian Fellowship, that in our fellowship, in the name of Jesus, we would come to know God with us. Not just as a, not just as a benefit, but as a force for change in our lives, in our relationships, and then out from us in the world. When God comes, it means the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the first thing that's prompted, the first word out of Jesus and John the Baptist's mouth is repentance. Repent. Allow the presence and the reality of the kingdom to change you and to turn you. Um, and then there's one other question. There's, there's another layer to it, which is this question. Do I make Jesus Christ real to the people around me. You can call it evangelism if you want, but that tends to conjure up a very narrow aspect of what it means to make Jesus real to the people around you. And when Jesus Christ becomes real to you, your presence in other people's lives is, the, is that light switch. And it prompts sometimes repentance, sometimes rage and paranoia. <laughs> and any of those other responses that Jesus had, he said, if, you, if they did it to me, they'll do it to you. 
However they responded to my presence, that's going to be... And we, so we need to ask ourselves, do we identify with Jesus in that way? Does our reality in people's lives, when they get to know us, and the name we call ourselves by, Jesus, we are Christians, does that demand a response in the people around us? Or, or can people be apathetic around us? Can people just not feel one aspect of discomfort or the need for a savior or the need for repentance. Okay, and see, these are all questions to ask ourselves to, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to, to examine our hearts and, and ask ourselves, really, is Jesus Christ real to me? Um, so that's the, that's the question that I'm, I'm pondering and praying over us corporately, right? I, I believe that everybody here has, has a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Um, but as a, as a group, are we going to be a church that Jesus Christ really is manifested in? Where, where he is, where he, in our fellowship, he is God with us. And that, that can be a fearful thing. Um, and like I said, the, the only thing that can exist if he's really here is ambivalence <laughs> and passivity. You can't just, you can't just ride, ride the wave. If Jesus is really here. Amen. Um, so I want us to take some time and just kind of digest, I guess, literally digest uh, this, this whole idea. And I don't know if I've explained it the best or, but, but this is what was on my heart. And uh, there's something about those two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. And the question, is he real to me? Do I know those names? Do I know him by those names? Uh, that I wanted to bring us to tonight. And so we've sort of slowed down, and this is, it, it is out of Matthew, but this, you know, I haven't brought us into any deeper understanding in the structure of Matthew or the, the themes or anything. Um, this is just a, a reflection for us, uh, sort of an Advent reflection. Um, so I want to call us to the table, and this is our invitation. This is a real this is meant to, to be a source of incarnation in our lives weekly. It's the body and the blood of Jesus. And this is supposed to be a constant reminder of, of, of his reality to us. Um, so as we come, let's, let's let that be our meditation and reflection as we come to the table. Come and let the Holy Spirit make Jesus real to us in whatever way he needs to. And let the change and the response that that prompts be whatever it needs to. Um, and open ourselves up to that. Uh, he may reveal that we have elected some darkness in some areas of our lives. And he wants to come and flip on the light switch. And uh, we need to be open to that. Amen? <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. And thank you uh, for revealing to us his name and for making yourself known by your name to us and making yourself real to us in the person of Jesus. So as we come to the table tonight, I, I do pray that this would be a, a time of real fellowship with you, of real communion with you. Lord, I pray that, that your light 
would penetrate any darkness in our hearts. That your salvation and your deliverance would save us from any sins that we are in, God. And Lord, I pray that we would not limit our understanding of sin. There are ways that we can exile ourselves from your presence that are very subtle and very palatable. Uh, And I pray that you would reveal those. Lord, the ways that we dwell in darkness. Shine your light on us, God. We want to proclaim your death until you come. And we thank you that you are the Savior, that, that your heart groans when, when you see us groaning under the weight of our sin. And you come and you move and you, you come and you, you draw us to yourself. And you save us so that you can be with us. You save us to, to be our God and for us to be your people. So Lord, I just simply pray that you would make Jesus real tonight to us in a deeper way as we come and partake of this body and this blood. In Jesus' name, amen.